Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to preface this episode by saying that I just had a conversation here today on Friday. Just got off the phone with Dr. Angelina Farella from America's Frontline Doctors. We had an excellent conversation. It's over an hour and 17 minutes long. You're definitely going to want to spread this one around. You're definitely going to, going to want to listen to this. Feel free and take notes. Listen to it as many times as you want. Um, you're also going to want to do this. You're going to want to take this episode, whether anonymously or not anonymously, and you're going to want to spread this to countless schools in your area. I don't care where you live, uh, you've, you, and, uh, and it doesn't matter if you have students uh, within that, uh, you know, kids within that school building or not. You really have to spread this to those school districts, the members of the school boards directly, the nurses. Please send it to the school nurses. She says it herself, Dr. Farella. Many of them are fully indoctrinated, and they need help, big time. Uh, send it to the local health departments as well. Please do that. Um, she even says it herself. There is this nihilistic approach right now to medicine, and it is really, really problematic, and countless parents as well are... are Drinking in the indoctrination like you wouldn't believe, along with all of those in the education business. Um, and it's clearly not everybody, but a lot of things are brought up here. In particular, um, the underlying issues with these jabs and the school environments, and then we get into the preventative measures as well. And I took some of your questions as well, and, and I asked uh, Dr. Farella some of your questions, and I believe they certainly got answered. So this is not just a educational and informative. I promise you it is also a positive conversation that we have here. And there's a lot of hope, but um, it's an interview like this that, that, that really has to get spread out a, a number of different places here. And I've invited her back, and she's been gracious enough to tell me that, that she'd love to come back sometime in August or even in the early school year and in the fall. So let me read her bio here so that you know who you're listening to. Uh, she's an independent pediatrician, Dr. Angelina Farella. Uh, she's in solo practice from Webster, Texas. She's the owner and CEO of A Brighter Tomorrow Pediatrics, established in 2004, and she's been in practice as a pediatrician for over 25 years. She's a graduate of Ross University School of Medicine and completed her undergraduate work at Rutgers University. She completed her residency training at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Pediatrics, where she also served as a chief resident. She's a wife and mother of three girls. She joined the America's Frontline Doctors in July of 2020 and was at their second White Coat Summit in Washington, D.C. She's had her she's had to use her telemedicine platform to treat patients with COVID and seeks uh, prevention and has sought prevention since the pandemic began. Due to the blessing of the Texas Medical Licensure, she's been able to treat all age groups and has helped hundreds and hundreds of patients to date. So here is my talk with Dr. Angelina Farella. What's been going on this week? I guess is my first question. What's what's the latest that you've heard? Um, how did the how did the CDC emergency meeting pan out? Well, the CDC's emergency being the ACIP, which is the um, it's the advisory committee for immunization practices, had their emergency meeting on Wednesday. Um, we did have. Um, a representative from American Frontline Doctors that did get to testify um, on the public side. Um, it was a little disappointing, to be honestly, for, to be honest, from a per perspective of, of a pediatrician, um, because 
they really did not seem to take the myocarditis and pericarditis um, adverse events very seriously, in my view. Um, they kept going back to a risk-benefit analysis that, honestly, when you're looking at children under the age of 18 and their risk of, of dying from COVID is 99, I'm sorry, is like their survivability is 99.997%. Right. Um, yet they are still pushing vaccination, saying they need to vaccinate to um, really do the benefit for everybody else, which, you know, you don't do vaccines for everybody else. You do vaccines to protect yourself. And so honestly, there is no true benefit for a child, um, you know, to get this vaccine. So it was really disappointing because they kept using the term mild when they were explaining myocarditis, which 90, over 90% of these kids were hospitalized. So that to me is not mild. Um, plus it also has implications, myocarditis and pericarditis have implications, um, far in excess into the future that you can't prematurely call them quote unquote recovered when you're not following them out. So, you know, this vaccine was only available to them 12 and over approximately six to eight weeks ago. And we already have hundreds of cases in the VAERS database of children with myocarditis or pericarditis. So that to me uh, when you're looking at a kid who probably wouldn't have been affected very much at all by COVID, yet when they get vaccinated, especially after the second vaccine for males, um, that risk really goes up. You know, when you're when you're looking at, they probably wouldn't have had it at all if they didn't get the vaccine. So, I don't know. I, I'm I'm very disappointed in the way they presented their case and and the fact that it just seems like the kids are a number to them and that they're not a true advocate for, for the patient safety. Um, and, and that's really where I came, that's where I came away with. I was really, really disappointed, to be honest. And isn't it true that that heart condition, that the spike proteins essentially just consistently attack the heart until eventually it fails and, uh, and a heart transplant is necessary? Uh, that can happen in some cases, in some extreme cases, sure. But I think part of the the issue is that we don't know how long the spike protein continues to circulate. Um, you know, we we saw studies of up to two weeks for sure, um, but that's when the studies ended. <laughs> so we don't have any long term data, and that's our biggest concern: is there's no long term data at all. And yet, you know, it's under emergency use authorization because it's under emergency use authorization. A lot of the um, rules that normally are followed for safety are not being followed. Let me ask you this, too, and then I want to kind of get into more of a, a K-12 angle and some of the things that you've that you've witnessed or maybe been a part of or not been a part of regarding what's going on in K-12 education and even higher education for that matter. Um, given that the that these jabs, so to speak, are not really a vaccine in the in the medical and and legal definition of a vaccine, um, and that now they're saying, of course, that individuals who have received these jabs cannot donate blood, and uh, that has direct implications, of course, to being able to not donate organs. 
I've even seen that they're suggesting that mothers who have received the jabs don't breastfeed because the spike proteins trans are transmitted in breast milk. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that or not. Um, it- we have heard of cases for sure. We have heard of, um, so there were some cases out there. The problem, again, the problem is this is not being studied just yet. Right. Um, and that, and that's part of the issue is the data that but there's not really solid data on anything. Everything that we're seeing is really anecdotal at this point because it really wasn't studied appropriately. You know, vaccines are supposed to study, supposed to be studied, um, in certain populations and offered, um, to certain populations within the study group. And this is the first time that I've ever seen a vaccine or a medication offered outside of the study group. And what do I mean by that? Well, when they did the initial studies, and I'm talking about the initial trials, they did not look at people that had recovered from COVID. I mean, that's just a simple population. And yet, you know, they are recommending that people that have recovered from COVID get this quote unquote vaccine. They did not look at kids under 18, and yet they are now down to 12. And it was like recommended to 12 and above without really any long-term studies. And most most vaccines for pediatrics take three to eight years to come to market. Right. Three to eight years before it goes to the general public. This one went not even a year and a half. And really, honestly, the kid... Uh, protocol from you know 12 and up they did maybe a month if that and it's just it's very frightening because they're just like painting this wide brush without really looking at the safety factors there is no there that's the thing that upsets me the most is you know paramount as being a pediatrician is to be an advocate for kids and this is a vaccine quote-unquote that really has not been studied thoroughly for children. And honestly, they don't really need it. So I don't understand why why we keep going through this whole rigmarole and where the ICI, ACIP, which they're in charge of safety. That's, their, that's like the reason why that committee even meets is to recommend vaccines based on safety. And honestly, they, they did a really poor job the other day. You know, it, it's truly, it's truly upsetting and it's very um, disheartening as a pediatrician that I feel that I don't think that agency is really looking out in the best interest of our, of our pediatric patients. Let me ask you this too, on top of that, because it, 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 it leads into other potential avenues uh, again. And myself, I mean, I, I was a former health educator and anatomy and physiology teacher. So, I mean, I've been studying this kind of thing since I was 18 years old. I'm almost 40 now. Um, given the fact that it's been said, the, the previous things that I mentioned about blood transmission and, and organ donation and, and breast milk, is it is it possible that given its immunocompromising properties, that it that it clearly has, where it's attacking the body. That essentially these these shots mimic the actions of HIV. You know, again, you know, we we are very concerned about the fact that there's breakthrough infection, right? So, so right. when you take a vaccine, if you just think of it in the broad scope, okay, sure. If you take a vaccine that is supposed to help you fight off an infection, 
then you should not have breakthrough infections. And we are seeing lots of breakthrough infections. We know this. The CDC doesn't even want to count them. This is how pathetic it is. So, so how does that point towards the effectiveness of the actual vaccine? Right. So what is that? I mean, a vaccine is given to you to boost your immune system against said illness, right? Said disease process or, or organism. That's not being demonstrated here. If you have this much breakthrough, and, and we're not talking a few cases, we're talking a lot of cases to the point where the CDC said they're so overwhelmed, they're not even going to count them. They're not even going to count them. So again, where's, where's the benefit? I don't know. I mean, that that's, you know, so does that link to that it makes a patient more immunocompromised? I'm not 100% that there's data that shows that, but we, one thing that we are concerned is that there may be a downregulation. And what that means basically is that you may be more susceptible or just as susceptible to the disease process post-vaccination than you are pre-vaccination. So again, that's where natural immunity would actually trump this. So <laughs> that's kind of where, you know, again, with me as a pediatrician, I really bank on a lot of natural immunity. I mean, kids have awesome natural immunity. And we are, if we are downregulating their natural immunity with this particular product, what's the point? We're endangering them. Have you, have you, have you heard, have you heard about or seen any cases related to the sexual transmission of these spike proteins from the shots? I have not, although that is something that has occurred. You know, I've actually thought about that, believe it or not. Um, and I'm waiting on the data because, again, you know, if we're going to look at science, we have to look at data. And right now, I don't think there's data in that. I think it's a it's a hypothetical situation and it should be looked at for sure. Um, I just don't know if there's data currently. Okay. Explain explain this too, because now I kind of want to get more into the both um, the age range of of K twelve students and even those in in, uh, in in college and university settings. Um, the FDA, who I who I don't trust at all, um, and that's my opinion. But given the fact that they've said that these shots are approved for twelve to seventeen year olds, give or take. And it's not approved for younger or older by the FDA. What is the difference in the shots? You know, what I can tell you is that the immune system works very differently under the age of 14 versus over the age of 14. Um, and so, you know, I think we, we really are seeing just from the data, if you looked at the ACIP actually showed this the other day that, um, you know, in males in younger adolescent males, the risk for myocarditis or pericarditis is much higher. Um, it does occur in, after the first shot and it can, it occurs even greater in, after the second shot. So we see these big jumps of what, it, of, of the cases compared to what they quote unquote expect. Okay. And so that data was very shocking to me. And the younger the adolescent male, the higher the risk. Okay. Once again, we're talking about a, an illness or a virus that really doesn't affect them that much. 
And so, you know, they get a cold. <laughs> Even Pfizer's own data showed that. When Pfizer showed their data, they showed that, um, you know, only 18 colds were prevented. It was not even severe symptoms. So in the placebo group versus their um, their vaccinated group. So we're dealing with essentially something that really is not um, very effective for that population. And the potential for the risk is so great. So when you're looking at 12 and above, um, which is what this is, this vaccine is aiming for people 12 and above. So we're looking at, you know, adolescent children. Um, we're looking at kids that are going through puberty. We're looking, so we're, there's so much data that we really have to look at because a Japanese study that showed that this particular vaccine um, tends to concentrate in gonadal tissue, which is, you know, the testes and also in the ovaries. That has far reaching implications you know, super far implications. This is very scary to me because this is another thing that what are we doing to our kids? What if, you know, you don't, I just, I just have a really hard um, time grasping the whole concept of why we would do this to our kids. We are supposed to be protecting our kids, not using them as guinea pigs. And this is what this looks like to me is we're downregulating the potential of downregulating their immune system because we have seen that with breakthrough infections. And now that we're seeing that this protein actually concentrates into the gonadal tissue, what does that mean? Now are we, are we looking at potential future, future um, destruction of those organs? Are we looking at potential future tumors in those organs? Are we look, what are we looking at? We don't know. Have you considered, know. Have you considered population control as being a motive? Well, of course. I mean, why would, why would we, ha I just, yeah, it's a scary situation. You know, I, what I are fully we doing? Understand. Yep. You know, yeah. what are we doing? We, 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 as I came to a lot of these conclusions months and months ago. And honestly, at the time that the vaccine was introduced back in November of 20, I kind of was like, Oh, okay. The kids are going to be left alone. Honestly, like my thought process was okay. You know, target adults, you know, especially high risk adults and, and everyone has to weigh their, their risk and benefit for getting the vaccine. But almost immediately we started seeing problems. And I thought, okay, someone is conscientious here and is going to do what they've done in the past historically, which is when there are problems with vaccines or new medications, they pull it off the market and study it. This is not the case. It's not the case here. I mean, I was, I've been a resident, I was a resident in 1999 when rotavirus vaccine was introduced and it was introduced prior to that, but there was a, an outbreak of, which they thought was higher than should have happened causal, um, after a rotavirus was, was given out to babies in a nursery, there were 15 cases of intussusception and they kind of put two and two together and they said, you know what, the vaccine may have been associated with this particular granted it's non-life-threatening for the most part i mean it could be but for the most part um but we're going to pull the vaccine so i know for a fact i went to the fridges and pulled the vaccine because it became it was recalled so we went and did that and i i remember at the time thinking wow 
you know what? They're really looking out for the best interests of the kids. Okay, so they pulled it. It took five more years for that vaccine to come back onto market. They found out later, epidemiologically, it had nothing to do with the vaccine. It was not causal. So, but they acted quickly, they acted swiftly, and they did act in the interest of the children. Okay, so I, I actually, from just that experience, I thought they're going to look at this, this um, new technology and this new um, product, and if there's problems, they're going to pull it immediately. And that's not the case. It seems like they're pushing it more and more and more despite the fact that there should be caution, despite the fact that we have kids that now are in danger. So there, I don't, so there's, I don't know what else, you know, it's so right. it's very frustrating. I understand. Right? So, so there's no difference in the juice that's being given to 12 to 17 year olds that's FDA approved mm-hmm. and the ones that adults are receiving. If it says yep. Pfizer, if it says Pfizer on it, it says Pfizer on it and that's it. Yeah, there's no dose. There's no dose changes for the kids. Nothing, well, as far as I know. No. Speaking of that, I came across something the other day that I thought was interesting because if you if if a person gets on an iPad or a person gets on an Apple TV and you open up YouTube and you scroll down beyond the first six videos or whatever, you'll always see this line of COVID propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, just these, just this string of videos, and the word usage that they use in those videos, and even for their titles, is rem- is remarkably detrimental, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. One of them is this: it says that they're working on a low dose COVID vaccine for children. Now, having studied propaganda for quite some time, I can tell you that, of course, they're saying that to make it easier for parents to make the decision to give them to give their children these jabs. Um, what, what are your thoughts on using such a, such a, 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 such word usage as low dosage? Yeah, I, I have a real big problem targeting kids. I mean, we, and I've been yelling about this actually for quite some time, because if you look at what the ad council um, has been putting out, it's very cartoonish. Um, you know, every other and you're right, you know, we turn on the TV and every other commercial has these, you know, COVID, go get your COVID shot, you know, whatever. And then they came out with these cartoons. Well, what do, what do cartoons target? They target children, right? So we're targeting children through the ad council that knows better, that knows that this is actually an illegal practice. You're not supposed to target kids um, when you're marketing um, for something that they can't consent for. And that's a whole nother nutshell, right? Right. And it, it's very disconcerting to me because the way the propaganda, and it is propaganda, it's absolute propaganda, the way those advertisements are set up. And, you know, I studied um, something called Media Mariners. It was actually a program that was through the American Academy of Pediatrics many, many years ago about how do you, how do you take um, a commercial and break it down to where the marketer is trying to target and, you know, this was a, this was something in the early 2000s that interested me. And I, I kind of went whole hog into that. And um, and now I see it resurging as if that never was an issue. And now, you know, the ACIP is, is lauding the fact that, you know, all these medical organizations are backing the vaccine. And honestly, a lot of those organizations do not represent the majority of physicians, the AMA does not represent the majority of physicians in the country. 
and yet they they put these titles in there. I know I dropped my academy, my American Academy of Pediatrics affiliation years ago, um, because they didn't they did not represent me, and they were fairly upsetting me with what they were they were going away from being advocates for children, and and that's kind of where I've always seen myself is I have always seen myself as an advocate for for children for my patients because they don't know. They just don't know. I mean, we're educated to understand what we understand. And when we're seeing things like this, like I'm seeing how the propaganda is targeting parents and how it's targeting kids and it upsets me. And when, when you say something, you know, you're either canceled or, you know, you're put down or there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue whatsoever. You know, it's, it's very frustrating. And so all I feel that I'm doing is I'm trying to educate people in my circle, in my circle of influence and trying to do the best that I can to give them both sides of the story. Okay. I'm concerned about long-term effects and honestly in a, in a disease process that doesn't affect children that much and, and that we have treatment for now, which we've had treatment for, that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother egg to crack, but why can't we wait? What is the harm in waiting? Why can't we wait for those long-term studies? Right. And, and what's the harm in not taking it ever? Correct. In particular, when you have an immune system that does just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you this too, and this leans more into the K-12 area as well, in particular within school environments. During all of this time, ha- have any local K-12 school districts where you've lived and, and you're in the Houston, Texas area, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Right. Yes. Okay. okay. I was born in Arlington, by the way. Not that that matters, oh. but there you go. <laughs> Once a Texan, always a Texan. The, um, right. uh, did any K-12 school district reach out to you and say, hey, you're a pediatrician. You know what's going on. Can you come here and talk to our staff or come here and talk to our students or come and talk to our district officials? Did any of them reach out to you? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I went to the board school, the school board meetings. I did uh, one meeting in October and reached out to them and said, hey, I've been here for 20 plus years in the area. Many of my patients are CCISD CCISD students. My own children go to CCISD. You know, so, you know, I reached out to them and said, hey, can we at least have a dialogue? And they said, thanks, but no thanks. And of course, they use the Ivory White Tower universities that will you know, give them hopefully some insight. Um, I have their policies that I've, I've watched their policies very closely because like I said, my kids go to that school district. Um, and I was not happy with them from the beginning there. They, it seems like, um, they were really just trying to save face. I mean, they didn't look at data. They didn't care about the science. They damaged kids because of loss of learning time. Um, I actually looked at our district numbers and they quarantined over 500 kids. So that, and they quarantined them for a minimum of 10 days, which gives you, you know, a total of five, over 5,000 lost learning days, which is ridiculous, ridiculous. And I know for a fact that some of these kids would show up to school for one day and get re-quarantined. <laughs> one day they came out of quarantine got to school, 
got exposed again, went back into quarantine with no regard to whether or not the child ever got sick, with no regard to whether the, the kid that exposed them was sick, actually, or just a positive test. I mean, there was whole, there was, the whole thing was just a farce. It really was a farce. And it very, you know, when we're looking at our kids, our kids lost half a year of school last year, you know, in 2020. So from spring break, which was like the beginning of March, most of the schools closed down completely. And all that was lost because no one really knew how to do the whole online distance learning thing. And, um, you know, we had so many, there was such confusion. These poor kids didn't know how to use the technology. The teachers didn't know how to use the technology. And basically it was all for naught. When we started school in, in August here locally, um, they were distance learning for two weeks before they got to do in, in person learning. Um, and even that was a sham. I mean, I know my, personally, my child could not even log on the first day. She tried all day long and could not log on. So, and, and I know for a fact as well that when kids got quarantined, it was kind of an option of the teacher to flip on the distance learning or not. And so there were kids that were anxious to learn and got online and their teacher never turned it on. So <laughs> where does that leave us? That leaves us with a bunch of kids a very large population of children. Our particular school district, just so that you know, we have 44,000 students in our school district. 44,000. And they didn't have the whole distance learning thing down at all. We have a kiddo that lived next door to us that literally was quarantined for a total of two months. Good Lord. So how much learning did that kid get? How much? Yeah. What's the point? It's it's so frustrating. And then we, of course, forget the whole psychological damage. I mean, last May and June, when all these seniors were graduating and they couldn't graduate, they couldn't have their celebrations. It, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, to this day, I, it still chokes me up and gets me so upset that, you know, that's a huge stepping stone, huge stepping stone. And yet these kids couldn't celebrate that huge stepping stone from childhood to adulthood. You know, that whole, I'm done with high school. Now I'm going on with the rest of my life step as an adult. That, that has damaged so many kids because this year, just alone in my little practice, I have a small practice. I'm a solo practitioner here locally. And just in my practice, I have kids with eating disorders now that I have not seen eating disorders in decades, literally. And I have about five now. And two of them have been suicidal. So, I mean, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I can't even begin to tell you how many kids have anxiety. I mean, it's like every other patient. There, I have to kind of go through some counseling on anxiety for their child. It was really bad in September. It's getting a little bit better now that things are opening up and kids can actually explore. But these kids have been indoctrinating to fear. And so they still have anxiety. They still have fear. And they're told that they were told in September and in August and in, you know, July and in June that if they went to school and they contracted this virus, that they were going to bring it home and hurt somebody at home or potentially kill somebody at home that they loved. That is horrible. That is a horrible message to give our kids. So now how do you deprogram that? And when we know for a fact 
an absolute fact because we have data that proves that children were a buffer. They actually prevented disease spread, but that's not what they were told. And if you're told something enough times, right, you actually start to believe that even if it is a false narrative. Yeah. And it was. Where were, the, where were the school nurses during this time? Because, because I know that many of them, unfortunately, are taking orders from, their, from the local health departments, and then that filters right down into classroom policy. I mean, one of the abominations I saw that was actually taken seriously were local school districts putting up shower curtains in between desks. If that were done back in 2019, that teacher would have been psychologically evaluated, arrested, fired, and they would have lost their teaching certificate, and they never would have been a teacher ever again, if not thrown in jail. But now that's being taken as, that was actually taken for a moment in history that was taken as a preventative measure against an illness in a classroom setting. My question to you is, is where in the hell are the K-12 nurses? You know, it's, they, a lot of them were indoctrinated into that too, unfortunately. God dang. You know, again, so they, they kind of threw their education out the window. Yeah. Um, you know, even in our district, I could tell you that there were a few that spoke up because if they did, they were risking their jobs. And, you know, it was really like a lot of it, they were told they had to escalate it up, you know, through their chain of command. If they had a patient that, you know, or, or student rather that was sick, um, it, it went through this big turmoil and, and it was, it was ridiculous. I mean, kids couldn't have a, a snotty nose in school. They were getting kicked out because you have a COVID symptom. I mean, even to this day, we are now in almost July of 2021. Okay. And to this day, I'm still getting calls to my office from parents that want us to see their sick child because other doctors' offices will not see sick children. Mind you, they're pediatricians. They will not see sick children if they have two or more COVID-like symptoms without a COVID test. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, there's other diseases in the world like, oh, I don't know, strep throat, angina, hand, foot, mouth, ear infections. I mean, all this stuff still happens. <laughs> And they're refusing to see patients. That to me just blows my mind. That to me just that I, I've said that from the beginning. You know, when we were told at the very beginning, and I'm I'm saying we as a population, we were told by the television sets all the time who are, you know, that's where we should be getting our medical advice from. Stay home, wash your hands if you're sick. Do not see your doctor. Call your doctor, maybe they'll see you. I mean, what what? Don't don't go to the ERs until you can't breathe anymore. I this is this is what drives me literally crazy because I just it upsets me so much. What did I sign up for? I became a doctor to treat sick people. That's the whole idea. And yet we had this whole propaganda campaign against seeing patients. And we cannot we can't compete with a you know national broadcast system. We can't do that. But mm -hmm. I just, I, I was blown away. And literally, like, my phones stopped ringing for a very long time. And I and I would go on Facebook Lives and say, listen, we're still here for you. You know, we will see you. We have virtual. If you're, if you're concerned about coming in, we will do virtual visits for you. Because we did not want our kids, especially our babies, we have to monitor them developmentally. Right? 
And so six months is way too long to, to miss a developmental milestone. That's our job. And so I just could not understand why in the world everyone was told, and it was published actually, that the one of the top 10 places that you can catch COVID was a doctor's office. The doctor's offices were empty. And this is the propaganda that they put out there to the public. Like, don't go see your doctor because you might get COVID at your doctor's office. Well, who's more capable of taking care of it? Your doctor. If you're sick, you're supposed to go to your doctor. That's the whole point. Right. What What, what do you think about, um, what, yeah, it, it is overwhelming, <laughs> no, no doubt about it. What do you think about the K-12 schools that are actually administering these shots to their students and staff on site? Oh, don't, uh, I don't even know how to contain my my anger over this. Because because uh, I'm going to tell you, I, I you know when I taught school and the blood bus would show up, I would lose my mind. I because because mm-hmm. students and staff would use it as an excuse to get out of class. And, and look, if you want to go and donate blood, do it on your own time. This is my time to teach you. It's not It's not blood donation time. But, yeah, it runs along those same lines. But clearly this is far worse. So what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, again, it's an emergency use authorization. It's not FDA approved. As a matter of fact, an email went through to my children and to myself from our ISD that worded it for these vaccine clinics in our gymnasiums. Now, it happened in the summer actually just a few weeks ago, again, before they even did these clinics, I went to the school board and advised very strongly against this. Advised very strongly. Because what the other issue is, is that they don't understand where does the liability lie. So, you know, the the pharmaceutical companies have, because they have labeled these things as vaccines, they are free from liability. However, not everyone is free of that same liability, including a school district. And so my concern, even though it was run through our county health district to have these clinics, my concern was, number one, you're using my tax money for the building's electricity and to keep someone to open that door and to monitor you know, the people that are walking in and out against what I think is right especially as a pediatrician, but this is not an FDA approved product. It's not. And yet in the email, it said per FDA approval. And that's truly misleading because I think many, many people are, are not told appropriately that these still are not FDA approved. They're under EUA, which is not the same as full FDA approval. And so when people are going to these clinics, they really think this is an FDA or one of the shots is FDA approved. And it's not. It's not approved for children. It's not. So that, you know, that just drew, drives me crazy because my concern is, okay, you're using a school gymnasium. Who's, who's responsible if something happens in that gymnasium? Who's there? What trained professional? Since when... Do we come between a patient and a physician's relationship? Shouldn't the patient go to the physician and understand and get the full informed consent? Whether that's, you know, a conversation, a paper copy, these patients are not getting any of that informed consent to this day. To this day, it's a big problem. 
to this day, it's a huge problem that that parents are parading their children into these gymnasiums for shots that they don't need, but can also harm them for future decades, for decades and decades. And this is this is especially if the kid had COVID and didn't know it. They're not pre-screening. They're not pre-screening. So if you're already immune to the disease, you don't need the vaccination. And they're not telling people that. They're telling people, oh, you have the disease. It's okay. You can still get the shot. That's not appropriate. But it is what the ACIP said. It is what CDC said. It's not what science tells you. They're going completely against science. It's it's not data. And that's that's the thing I think that it that infuriates me the most is like they're talking about, you know, these are safe and effective vaccines when the data proves otherwise, but they're ignoring it. And really, honestly, again, we've never given a product to a child that has not been studied for at least three to five years long term safety data. Ever. Not not that I know of. Ever. So I don't know. I feel like the world's gone crazy, honestly. And and it just, it upsets me that so many of the university systems are influenced by money now and aren't looking hardcore into the data. And any doctor that questions it gets reprimanded. And that's really what's happening here is that there's no honest dialogue. Doctors are losing their jobs. If they question, um, you know, policy, the policymakers are not physicians this whole thing is just one giant tumbleweed and, and it really upsets us to the core. Those of us that are looking at the data and those of us that are, that care about our patients and really do have the best interests of our patients. If we're not, we're not being evil people because we're saying take caution. And I think that's, we are made into these evil people because we're saying, no, let's look at the data and let's be cautious about this. And we're, you know, that whole thing is being distorted. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah, I, sometimes I don't have the words either. It's, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it, it's evident that countless people are in breach of their own contracts. K 12 teachers, school nurses, people are practicing medicine that have no business doing it. And then they're, of course, doing the exact opposite of what they were sworn to do. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you yeah, about medical the- nihilism is, is alive and well. It, it's really sickening. Yeah. That's another, that's a whole nother branch that really upsets me is, is, you know, I was one of the only still, <laughs> I mean, we've been operating since the beginning of the pandemic, open doors, come on in. We will even see you in the parking lot if you're not comfortable coming into the office. I mean, we, we were seeing patients outside under tents and in their cars just so that they would come in and be seen because it, it that's. You know, now we're seeing all this uptick in tumors and metastatic cancers and, and worsening of illnesses like diabetes because of the lack of monitoring over the last 18 months. People were afraid to go to the doctor, and so they didn't, and now they're suffering the ill effects of delay of treatment because not just on their side, but because the doctor's offices were closed and the surgery centers were closed and the hospital systems were saying, we're not doing elective surgeries anymore. We're not doing diagnostic surgeries anymore. We're not doing diagnostic tests, you know, like EGDs and colonoscopies and things that are for preventive care. They stopped, completely stopped. Ludicrous. 
Yeah. It's absolutely ludicrous to me. And I and and now they're surprised that all these issues are coming up. It's our own fault. As a medical as a medical community, it's our own fault. Because we didn't stand up ahead of it. I couldn't understand it. And I kept saying, Why are we doing this? Why are we doing why why is this happening? I don't understand why this is happening. I mean, I'm in one of the largest medical meccas in the United States. I mean, Houston is huge for medical. I mean, there's, there's a hospital almost on every corner and it was, it was like a ghost town. Yeah. Let me, um, let me ask you about flu shots. Given the fact that, that the individuals who have taken these COVID jabs, um, and and again, based on what we know regarding compromised immune systems and and uh, you know the, the prevalence of the spike protein moving everywhere throughout the body and affecting countless organs and and what have you, um, your recommendation for a flu shot coming up for those that have received these COVID jabs would be what? You know, I really you know I I thought about this recently too, just the other day because I saw data. It came forth from, it was actually from 2017, 2018. It was data from um, our armed forces. And basically what it showed is that the relative risk of getting coronavirus was higher if you got a flu shot. And so that was quite interesting to me. (laughs) I mean, it was up like 30% or more. Like if you got a flu shot that you had 30% more risk of getting coronavirus. Now it wasn't COVID-2 at the time, of course, but still, you know, that was an interesting fact that I saw pop up because they, they listed respiratory um, viruses and coronaviruses was up there. It was one of the highest ones. There was three. So it's an interesting uh, conundrum for me right now, because, you know, again, I, I do a lot of vaccination here in the office as a pediatrician. I do, you know, for babies, we do want to protect babies from influenza and other respiratory illnesses. But now, I mean, I'm going to have to really, it's something that just came up recently. And so it's something that I'm actually doing research on because I want to give my patients the best informed consent I possibly can. I want to give them the best knowledge base that I can muster to help them make a decision. And I honestly, that, that's a very tough go for me right now. And I think this whole situation with the, with the, vac- the quote unquote vaccine for COVID is the fact that it, I predicted this from the beginning when I started to see the data that people were having adverse events that were super serious. I said to myself, this is going to ruin all the good that vaccines have done in all these decades. And I still feel that way. As a matter of fact, I feel strong, stronger about that now than I did even six months ago. It is, this has made us not trust anyone. As physicians, especially pediatricians, I think if you are discerning and you're thinking about it critically, you're really concerned. Who do we trust now? Because I had trust in Big Pharma 18 months ago. I really did. I was like, oh, well, they're going to do the right thing. I really did. And I think a lot of us did. And I think that's that's what now we're so upset over is, okay, well, who do we trust? And, and I don't, honestly, the answer is I don't know just now. I mean, looking at data, I'm going to have to do a complete data mine. You know, we have already put in our flu vaccine orders. We have to do it in February. So my vaccine order has been put in. 
So now I'm thinking, gee, should, what should I do? I mean, should I keep it and risk losing a ton of money if I decide that maybe it's not in the best interest of my patients? Or, you know, are there going to be certain instances where I do still recommend it? Are there going to be certain instances where I say absolutely not, do not get it, even if you've gotten it in the past? I don't know. I'm a little concerned. I'm more than a little concerned. I'm a lot concerned. <laughs> so yeah. it's putting a wrench into the into the system because we physicians really did trust our vaccine companies, our vaccine companies to do the right thing. And what I'm seeing now really puts a chink in that armor. L- let me ask you a bit of a philosophical question, if you don't mind. Um, and I don't know how philosophical it is. I, I just said that. Uh, do, do you do you see a shift here potentially in a good way from from moving from a vaccine culture to a more preventative holistic medicine culture? Um, you know, it's hard to say because if you look at the numbers of people that are stepping forward to get this vaccine, or what they're, what they're publishing as the so-called numbers. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are much more interested in vitamins and preventive care than ever before. Yes, I will agree with you there. As a pediatrician, that's my whole life. It's preventive care. So um, the issue is, is that I mesh that with vaccines, right? So preventative care and vaccines kind of go hand in hand when you're talking about, you know, meningitis, for instance, right? So <laughs> I just have, I'm going to, it's going to be a really tough go for me, honestly, you know, because I have now seeds of doubt where I never had seeds of doubt before ever. It was like, oh, you know, like, of course you're going to get this vaccine because it prevents meningitis for you. <laughs> and like, I, I've never in my mind, I've never said to a patient, as far as I know, like, unless it was a parent, I'll, I'll take that back. Like, I do recommend in the past, I did recommend parents, especially if very small infants, to please get a flu shot to protect themselves from getting the flu so they wouldn't pass it to their infant or pertussis, for instance, you know. So those things, because it's an adult that's trying to protect their infant who doesn't have the immunity yet for life-threatening uh, illness at that age group, yes, I did recommend it. But now what you're seeing and, and the other vaccines, you know, like for meningitis, like pneumococcal and Hib, and, um, you know, the Minactor or the whatever meningitis vaccine that you use, those, those vaccines are to prevent something that can kill you very swiftly. You know, meningitis is no joke. You could die in 24 hours. Right. And so I've always recommended, like, you know, these things because you just don't know. You just don't know what you don't know. And if you know that a small infant is at high risk, for potentially getting that because of daycare or whatever, sure, you know, you feel more confident at, of recommending that. Here, though, with all that has gone on with what the vaccine companies are doing now, it's harder and harder to be confident, I think. At least my personal experience right now is it's harder and harder for me to, to exude that confidence. I'm very concerned that there's other things that might be hiding. Are they, are they keeping more things from us or are they ignoring more things that we don't know about that we can't get our hands on because they're not transparent. And it's the transparency issue that I struggle with more than anything. And I, so 
I, that's kind of a trick question for me again, you know, cause I do believe, and I always believed that natural immunity trumps vaccine um, immunity. However, we have patients, especially small, small infants that don't have that immune system yet and that these diseases can kill swiftly. So you're, you're, you're on a balance beam right there. You know, what do we do? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know, but I've always, you know, I've been more of a holistic type pediatrician anyway. I've always recommended vitamins and I've always recommended, you know, how to feed children. I'm, I'm very anal about that in particular. Um, so in my, in my, in my estimation, I think you're right as far as people looking for more holistic ways of keeping themselves healthy, for sure. Um, and less, I think there's going to be less reliance and less trust in pharmaceuticals and um, medical therapies than there ever has been before, for sure. Let, let me ask you about um, former cancer patients or current cancer patients. Um, when it comes to receiving these jabs, what's your recommendation for that? And I, again, I'm, I'm prefacing the question from a couple of angles, but one of them, of course, is that we've already seen that individuals who, who used to have cancer and don't anymore have received the jabs and the cancer returns in spades. The same is true with individuals who have never had cancer. Um, previously speaking, in one of my uh, last talks with a, with a colleague of mine, on my podcast, she reported that her 80-year-old mother-in-law has never had cancer, received the jabs, and now has aggressive uh, lymphatic and breast cancer. So what is your message to people who um, are considering giving these jabs, regardless of the, of the individual's age, who have previously had or currently have cancer? Um, I'm not an oncologist. Let me just put that out there. Sure. I'm, I'm not an oncologist, so you know, cancer is way out of my lane. Um, generally speaking, though, I mean, generally speaking, I would say we are seeing anecdotal. Again, I don't, I haven't seen great data on any of this yet. Um, we have heard case reports. We have heard anecdotal data. Um, as far as you know, we. You know, I'm in contact and I'm in groups with other physicians all over the country. And, you know, we're seeing tons and tons of just anecdotal case reports um, coming through our feeds. And it's a sad situation. And again, you know, sometimes these people feel that they're making a decision on getting something that they feel that they're at high risk for. And again, I, I give pause. What I don't blame them for that. I think the misinformation is so thick and so deep, even with doctors. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's doctors out there that are recommending these things and without really understanding the potential of the harm that they're doing. And it's unintentional. I don't think it's intentional. I don't think doctors are saying, go get this because they intend to hurt their patient. That is not what I'm saying at all. I think the misinformation or the blocking of good information is making some doctors make very wrong decisions. And I also think that it's also the responsibility of the patient to do their own research, especially if you are a cancer patient, especially um, if you're getting up to, you know, because we know that cancer incidence increases with age, right? So 
I mean, that's a no-brainer. The longer you live, the higher your risk for cancer, and you, you may get it eventually um, just by our own numbers in the United States. But what are, what are some of the things? I mean, these are things that we focused on for years and years and years about cancer prevention. You know, this is some of these things that we're doing. Um, you know, people need to use their common sense. We know, we also know things like, hey, there are some viruses that trigger cancer. We know that. I mean, I, I don't, we know that HIV, for instance, triggers Sarkozy's lymphoma. We do know that it, you know, there's lots of different things that can happen. Hepatitis B. Hepatitis B virus can cause hepatocellular carcinoma of the liver. So we do know that there's viruses that turn on oncogenic genes. That being said, we also need to take into effect that there are medications that decrease our immune system and knock out certain parts of our immune system that are there specifically to kill cancer cells in our system. And is this one of those things? That is something that we need to study. Is this particular product knocking out a very important part of our immune system that is our policeman for cancer cells that kills off those cancer cells? Because we all have them. We all have cancer cells in our body, but our immune system takes care of them. They kill them. They get rid of them. Is this product knocking those cells out? That I think is a great, that's a great question to ask. That's something that we need to look at for sure. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. It, it certainly seems like it would, it would be a trigger, even from an autoimmune standpoint. If the idea clearly is to have an immune system, then you would want that immune system to do what it's naturally born to do without interfering it with man-made chemicals, uh, in particular in the form of a syringe. Um, let me ask you again, sort of shifting back to the more holistic medicine avenue. Um, and again, I'm sure this is all anecdotal as well because there's a lot of information coming out about a number of different things. So let me, let me umbrella this question by saying this. There are a number of individuals as well, which I'm sure you're aware of, who are reporting having received it. The word shedding was used a while back. Now they're, now they're saying full-blown transmission of these spike proteins from uh, the jabbed to the unjabbed. As it stands now, where you're sitting, is there anything that can be done for individuals who have not been jabbed and will never get jabbed? Who are, are and is there something that they should do uh, when they're around people who have been jabbed? So, so one of the things that we know for sure, and again, this is stuff that's still rolling out. There's still a lot of study. Um, however, we are seeing. Um, patients that um, are very concerned with this particular issue um, and you know we know that it causes inflammation in the lungs we do know that like the spike protein by itself studies have shown it can go to let directly without the virus involved directly to the lung tissue and cause inflammation so what are some let's just break it down like what are some things that stop or slow down the process of inflammation in the lungs vitamin d is huge and I tell people this all the time. I've been using vitamin D in my patient population for over 12 years. If, you know, I always encourage it. And nowadays with the whole electronic age, kids are not going outside in the sunshine. So I'm finding kids with very low vitamin D levels. Vitamin D is very protective of many of our organ systems, not just our lungs, but really, truly our lungs. So 
any of my patients that have asthma or reactive airway disease or have had issues with heavy allergies that cause a lot of upper respiratory issues, the first thing I tell them is get on vitamin D and stay on vitamin D. I've told them that for over 10 years when I saw studies that came out about asthmatics and vitamin D levels. And that was eons ago. So Supplemental so vitamin, vitamin D, D, right? I'm sorry? So, I'm sorry. Supplemental vitamin D along with yes. the normal things. Along with do. sunshine, getting outside, grounding yourself, getting getting kids to play. I mean, it, it amazes me. You know, we're in summertime here in Southeast Texas, and I understand it's hot. I get that whole thing. Kids are not on the playgrounds. And when we were growing up, we were outside from dusk to dawn, you know, or dawn to dusk, (laughs) right? So, you know, I was driving down the road in the middle of the day one day, and I'm like, there's no kids outside. There's no, there's none. They're not riding bikes. They're not, you know, they might be in pools, maybe in their backyard, I guess, but there's kids, there's no kids at the playgrounds. It's, it just amazes me how it's like just desolate. And that never happened when I was a kid. So we really do have to encourage exercise. That's huge. Exercise. I mean, it seems almost ridiculous that we have to encourage children to play and get exercise, but we do. And and part of it is is adults have to do it too. I mean, getting outside. Now, there's other um, supplements that you can use. Of course, with COVID, we recommend vitamin D. We recommend zinc. We vit- we also recommend iodine because some people are very low in iodine because they keep very low salt diet. So our salt is supplemented with iodine. Um, so you do have to be careful not to be too low on your iodine. Um, we also recommend something called NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine. And we know that N-acetylcysteine is a very potent anti-inflammatory, especially in the lung. I was going to ask also, you about that. I was going to ask you. That was my last one. <laughs> That's coming. awesome. Here I come. <laughs> Sweet. Bring them. Keep bringing it. So, so NAC um, is an essential component when we have children that have cystic fibrosis. They are taking NAC nonstop um, because of its important anti-inflammatory effects in the lungs and it breaks down mucus in the lungs that kids with cystic fibrosis have. So um, NAC is very, very important and we're also seeing some protection um, in post-vaccinated people with adverse events. So they feel a little bit better on the NAC and so we know that it blocks certain pathways and so um, that are harmful and so people that are not getting vaccinated for whatever reason, you know, if that's their choice, um, and and they feel very strongly that they do still want to protect themselves from being around other people that are vaccinated because that was their choice, NAC is essential. Now, ironically, the FDA just took it off the market over the counter, um, which always leads to suspect, right? Now, so now this is something that's been over the counter for decades decades and now all of a sudden they pulled it off the market and very quietly they did this of course they pulled it off the market over the counter market so it's only available by prescription so get to your doctors and tell them you want a prescription for n-acetylcysteine so you know it's 600 milligrams at least once a day NAC is very very important so you know just the bait that's just the basics you know if you can stick with some of the basic great multivitamin i'm a huge coq10 fan i love coq10 it's a very potent antioxidant i'm a huge fish oil fan um anyone that comes into my office they know at any given moment i'm going to tell them about probiotics coq10 fish oil and vitamin d like those are my bigs um a good multivitamin is never hurtful (laughs) you know it's like it fills in gaps 
So, you know, if you know, welcome to America, we still are very lacking in our fresh fruits and vegetables and eating fresh foods. We are very, uh, we're very processed and immediate um, gratification type of society. So there's a lot of people that still out, eat out and fast foods and that kind of thing. You've got to, you've got to fill in your gaps. You've got to fill in your nutritional gaps to stay healthy. It's, it's not that you, you know, we say, please don't eat fast food more than once a week. And I get it. People work. I understand that whole thing. But you still need to pay attention. You go back to the basics, right? Eat well, exercise, watch your weight, get some sunshine. I mean, these are all basic things that you learned when you were in kindergarten. This is not anything that's difficult. We just have to get back to the basics. And I think that's where that's where we're going to kind of rebound. And I think, the, you know, if we look at the silver lining of this whole nightmare, we're getting back to basics. I think people are starting to see that more and more and get back to those basics of just good food, to fuel your body, to keep you well, and getting outside and exercising. I mean, all those basic things really do help. Let me hit you rapid fire here with with a few others. Um, just to just to, I'll just say the name, and then you can just provide your your quick thought on it. Um, what about elderberry? Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Elderberry, great. Take it. Okay. Sure. Pine pine needle t- pine needle tea. Okay, that one I just hit up a couple weeks ago. So there is some <laughs> there is um. Really interesting things about pine needle tea. Of course, you have to get the right pine needles. Right. That's number one. Uh, so be careful. <laughs> I wouldn't exactly just go collect any pine needles and start boiling water. Um, but it, there is some potential for it. But I would say, you know, there's you could probably get the same thing in, in something a little more safe. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that it has uh, five times the amount of vitamin C that a lemon does. And uh, having experimented with it a couple of times, I can tell you that if you take what they refer to as an okay amount, where you have enough white pine tea, uh, uh, white pine needles uh, in between your your thumb, the tip of your thumb and your index finger, to fill up that amount, you cut it up and drink it. I mean, you can experience some to- some toxicity uh, and a little lightheadedness as a result of of drinking that much. But um, yeah, let me ask you about uh, bromelain, if I'm saying that right. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot on that. Again, that's one of those. It's usually in a good multivitamin, though, so you probably will get enough if you get a good, a good, well-rounded multivitamin. Okay. Um, let me let me ask you this then. Again, this is kind of off of the, just shifting gears slightly. Um, what about uh, your, your predictions here for the upcoming fall? And. And in particular, all of this talk now with these quote-unquote booster booster jabs. Um, any any thoughts on that? Any any predictions for what you see coming down the line here, in particular with K twelve schools? I know there's a lot in that question, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hopefully, um, again, sense will come to some of our large entities, and they will immediately look into um the dangers associated with these jabs that's that's number one i'm I'm praying for that every day trust me um as far as boosters if because people worry about variants let's let's just kind of change shift a little bit to variants because i think that's what you're talking about is like people are looking at potential boosters for the variants let me just explain to you that the variants are less than one percent different than the original see that's the thing is i was going to say i don't think the variants are a real thing i think it's a scare tactic correct yeah. Correct. And, and we have already seen, you know, they're like, oh, the Delta variant, the Delta variant. Well, the Delta variant we are seeing across the board, it's it's more transmissible, meaning it spreads faster, but it's less deadly. So 
when you're looking at an overall survival rate of COVID-2, which, you know, was really high, it's in the high 90s, like, unless you get over 80, you're still looking at a 98 plus percent survival rate, okay? I'm not saying that there's not fluke things that happen to younger people. I totally understand that. I know people that have died that were young and it's, it's, it's hard. You know, it, it is, we don't like that in medicine ever, but on the same note, we have also seen people that are dying from the jabs that really survived all this time and did just fine. And I think the ultimate slap in the face is when people say, well, it wasn't because of the vaccine. How do you know? We need to, we need to seriously take a serious look at this because this is for humanity. This is not just, we're not looking at, I can't stand assigning a number to a person. A person's a person. A person's a human being. It's somebody's mother, brother, sister, uncle, whatever. We have to look at humanity in a different light, not just as a number. And I think that's what we're missing here. I think these large um, agencies are just with all these alphabet soup letters they're not looking at people the way you're supposed to look at people, which is as, as a human. And I just have a real big issue with um, what are they going to do? If they're doing what they're doing now, here, here's my fear, right? If they're doing what they're doing now, not really analyzing the data the way they should and not taking appropriate measures, which would be to pull back and really study this hard and correct the problem in whichever way it looks like. Maybe this is the wrong technology. Maybe this is, maybe they have the wrong carrier state. Maybe they have the wrong protein that they're immunizing against. You know, we need to take a real strict look at this before we start with this whole booster thing. Because what we are seeing is that adverse events happen the more you get the shots, right? So the, the adverse events after one vaccine is X number, and it nearly doubles or triples after the second. So what's going to happen for the third or the fourth. That's that's my big fear. And and we can just look backwards. I mean, we know in pediatrics, let me just give you a good example, just to try to equate this. We know that, for instance, the, the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, um, acellular pertussis vaccination, adverse events um, occur at a higher rate the more you get it. So like a two-month-old is less likely to get any kind of side effect from that particular um, vaccine than a child who is now six months old who's already had two previous. Granted, still a very low chance, very, very low, like super seldom. However, we know that that chance has increased because you're exposed to it because of your exposure to previous times. So that's my concern, is we are already seeing horrible adverse events in people that are fully vaxxed. So what if we give them a booster? Now what? Because... Their recommendation right now is if you have an adverse event to the first jab, it's okay to get a second one. What? We never recommend in medicine that if you've had an allergic reaction or some kind of bad reaction to something, that you just go ahead and try it again. We, we never say that, ever. So I don't know where this is coming from. And that's what I'm saying. We're, we're losing confidence because all of a sudden medicine's on its head. It's completely turned around. It's completely screwed up. Because we have never said, oh, yeah, why don't you just go ahead and try that again? Oh, you had an anaphylactic reaction to peanut butter? Why don't you eat some peanuts next week? We've never done that. That is not, 
that is not good advice at all. But yet we're doing it. Our big agencies, they put that out yesterday. Yeah. And that to me is terrifying. That's terrifying. And the and the cognitive dissonance that exists with individuals when they'll say who have re- for the individuals who have received the jabs and let's say they didn't have any adverse reactions right away. You know, they'll say, well, if somebody else had adverse reactions, then that's just them. That's just their immune system. Um, that holds absolutely no weight as far as I'm concerned. Correct. You know, that's total, uh, that's a total rationalization and a completely dismissive attitude. That's like saying, well, yeah, it's like saying a lot of things, but, um, let me ask you this then. Any 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 final advice here for parents, teachers, school officials, because and and students and and children, because they're going to be the ones that are listening to this. I'm going to encourage my audience to spread this everywhere and and send this to school officials so that maybe just maybe they wake up a little bit. Um, any yeah. any final advice for them here on this upcoming school year? And uh, I don't. I didn't think I'd have to ask you about mask wearing because I can. I can guess as to where you stand on that. But go. But go for it. Well, here's the thing: is our children are are thirty percent of our population and one hundred percent of our future. It is imperative that we pay attention to what we're doing to our kids. It is imperative that we really weigh the risk benefit to ourselves. Not not just what the numbers are showing as far as you know. If you have um, really large denominators and really small, we have to look at this as an individual. We do not need to look at this. And we need to look at this as a population. When we're looking at children under the age, people, people under the age of 50, they have over a 99% survivability rate. And so for COVID. And so when you're looking at that and you are risking the unknown, no one would ever take a great analogy happened the other day, which is, you know, if you found a, um, a, a drive on the sidewalk, would you go and plug that into your computer? Would you ever do that? Cause you don't know what's on that drive, right? Yeah. We are doing that right now to our people. We are just picking something off the ground and sticking it into our skin that we have no idea what it's going to do. And that is where I, I give people pause. I'm like, please just think about it. If you have gotten through the entire year of 2020 and partially through 2021 without contracting this disease, what truly do you feel is your risk? Don't act on fear at all. Be bold, have confidence in your immune system, have confidence that you have control of keeping yourself well. Really important. And also understand that there is treatment. There's treatment out there. Now, it may not be readily available to you, but you can reach out and get it for sure. For sure. It's not that hard. And even with just using the supplementation for prevention, it also helps active disease. So you can use it to boost your immune system, to help your body fight it, to get outside, get in the sunshine, sweat it out, do all these things to help you you do this. And with kids, encourage them to go outside. Encourage them to have socialization because that is killing our kids more than anything else, than this virus. This virus is not affecting our kids, but our response to the virus is is really hurting our kids. And this is this is my drive home. I don't understand it with our kids are not at super high risk. And so I want our parents to understand 
that you can go forward boldly and allow your children to interact with other children because they are not a risk to themselves or others doing that. This, this whole thing in September, kids need to be kids. Uh, our teachers need to teach. Our administrators need to think about the greater good, not just the immediate fear of what makes them look better because it's not about looks. Our kids are very, very important, and we are really doing so much harm right now, and we can reverse it. We can reverse it by going back to the good old basics, getting the kids outside, letting them play, letting them socialize. We know that the virus dies in sunshine. Get out in the sunshine. That was something that came out from the very beginning. It dies in 76 degrees or higher. In Texas, we have no problems with that. <laughs> We're 76 almost all year round. So get outside. Get the kids playing, get them socially. That's going to make everyone feel better because when the kids are happy and the kids feel better, they actually will interact with the adults and make the adults. And this is all, this has been shown. The worst thing that we did was isolate our elders, you know, telling them that they can't see their grandchildren, telling our grandchildren they can't see their grandparents. That's horrible. We've divided our families and we got, the, we have to stop this nonsense. It's got to stop. Uh, I, I've, I've mentioned it a million times on my podcast, America's Frontline Doctors website. I've acquired hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, a number of my family members have done the same. We have at least a year's worth just on deck. Um, you, do you recommend that others do the exact same? Yeah, so we have, we have quite a few um, resources for you through the American Frontline Doctors. We also have um, another website called myfreedoctor.com where we also use preventive treatment and active treatment via telemedicine. Telemedicine pro programs right now are pretty robust, um, treating people and helping them navigate the, the prevention aspects. Um, I've used personally, I've used a lot of ivermectin. I've used a lot of um, hydroxychloroquine for prevention. We are actually analyzing our data right now to see what the breakthrough in infection rate is locally in our in our practice. Um, so hopefully we'll have some numbers by the end of the summer. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge proponent of that. You know, preventive care is ideal. You know, if, and, and honestly, many people don't need it. But you know what, it's, it's kind of another something in your back pocket, so to speak, you know, that is just another added weapon. If you're already taking your vitamin D, if you're already taking your zinc, if you're taking your elderberry, NAC, um, quercetin, another one, quercetin's great. Um, you know, all those things that add up, CoQ10, your official, everything that is just antioxidant, eating well, getting in the sunshine, getting your exercise in, all those things just add to the robustness of the human race. And, and honestly, I think that the fear tactics and the ignoring of science that we know that hydroxychloroquine works. We know that ivermectin works. Early outpatient treatment, if you're actively ill, works. We know this. We treat it every day. And there's plenty of doctors across the country that are willing to help. And, and really, at this point, COVID should be treated very aggressively. Because we, you know, it's not discerning. The virus is not discerning. It kills young people, too. But you know what? Having the knowledge base of where to go to, and AFLDS can direct you. The American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons can also direct you. So you can get on the AAP, uh, AAPS website as well, um, and they can direct you as well. MyFreeDoctor.com, AFLDS.com, I mean, .org. Um, all those websites are, are there for the public to really get into there and, and do 
the right thing for themselves and empower themselves. I think that's super important. Super duper. It's, it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. And if there's anything else you'd like to add here, I, I, I personally would love to have you back. I know the audience would too, in particular with, with the upcoming school year and, and what, uh, you know, some of the things that I've been reading with, with what potentially might happen here in the next six to nine months could be, could be awful for, for yeah. those who have received the jabs. But, um, again, you, you have a full invitation to come back on anytime you want and, and bring the latest and greatest, uh, to this podcast to, to help. Excellent. I would love that. That would be great. And, you know, I look forward to getting the word out. I mean, that's really what my goal has always been is is to try to educate people to make their own decisions it's so important not to cater to fear but to get knowledge knowledge and wisdom is is utmost and but get it from multiple sources i always tell that to people too is you kind of have to know what your enemy's talking about too <laughs> i know that sounds awful that's true but, you know we, we have to know what the other side is saying as well. And, and unfortunately that's the one that's hitting the masses. And, um, we are, we're not getting our message out because we keep getting canceled. I mean, I got kicked off Facebook, um, AFDLS got deplatformed a couple of times, you know, this is not, and it's unusual, especially in the United States of America. I mean, we should not be having to deal with this, but we are. And so it always runs suspect, right? When, when someone's voice is, is shut down, that maybe they're actually speaking the truth and maybe they're actually giving you a message that you should be listening to. So I thank you so much for having me today. I think it's awesome. Um, I look forward to another one in the, in the spring when we, I mean, in the, in the late summer, fall, when kids are getting back to school, I think that would be great. We might have some more, hopefully more enlightening information. Um, that's more, positive <laughs> at that time. That's what I, that's what my prayers are for at least. Yep, definitely. I, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.